Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. All through history, there has been a tendency, and if you go back to, really back to recorded history, if you go back to Herodotus, you will find that the tendency existed and still exists today that the losers in either a discussion, friendly or rather sometimes a bloody discussion, be it philosophical or political, or in the extreme of a war, the losers almost always declared afterwards that they had really won because they were right and other things happened that they had nothing to do with. And this was sort of interesting to me at that time. This falsification of history, and this was really supposed to be the main topic of my talk, unfortunately persists to today. And as I began to look more into this, I discovered a few interesting things. Some of you may have encountered what I have encountered. There was a film which even was proposed for Nazca called Frost Nixon. An extensive interview over almost a week by a man named Frost of Richard Nixon. The script was written by a British writer. He was told after the film was finished by a University of North Carolina professor who had been present during the entire weeks of interview and made extensive notes, hey, what you've done, it's rubbish. It's absolutely far removed from any fact. And the man who made this film said, hey, it's entertainment. And the same person, his name is uh, uh, James uh, Peter Morgan, later wrote that what a complete farce of history is this. He himself said that. There are a number of cases happened in the 20th century. I have no intention of wasting your time in going over all these individual cases. But a few that happened in the last few years are very symptomatic. Let me say first, psychologists and attorneys, jurists, 
have for decades written about this problem and it's universal and there have been many university studies done on this either by interrogating people who witnessed an accident, a traffic accident in a city or uh, in an experiment was extra set up by the professor. The individual descriptions of what happened or of something that happened in the lecture room during a lecture are so diverse and so different from each other. There are very, very few that ever hit the nail correctly. And that, of course, tells you how little you can rely on eyewitnesses. You probably read or heard that the Pope had taken a small Catholic splinter group back into the fold of the church because they could not uh, risk a group splitting off completely from Roman Catholicism. And only after this happened did they discover that the bishop in charge of this group had denied the existence of the Holocaust, which led to the, led to the very embarrassing act that the Pope had resent his uh, offer to the bishop, and this country of Argentina the next day expulsed this bishop. I don't know where he is now, but he was kicked out of Argentina. The Palestinian Authority produced a TV series which they called, this is very recently, an educational uh, television video. This sets boldly the Israelis are the ones who did the Holocaust. No wonder the famous British historian, Arnold Toynbee, stated, and this is translated from German into English because I couldn't find the English reference, but it's the same words. Are we really correctly informed? Because the future of human society depends entirely on the answer to this question. So you see, it's still a problem. Well, the White Rose has not been immune to these historical distortions, almost from the very beginning. It so happens that the first published description of the White Rose was by me. At that time, Germany was divided in four zones, as you all know, Russian, French, British, and uh, American, and each power for its own zone 
published newspapers, magazines, etc., for in German language for the Germans, because it took them almost five years to grant a license to a German who was really clean and not in any way connected with national socialist ideology. Nobody knows about this. It was published in a British magazine in Germany. In 1952, the eldest sister of the Scholz, Hans and Sophie, published a book on the White Rose, which is very interesting. To me, very interesting for, for several reasons. One, like everybody else in our families, she knew nothing about what was going on. We had made it from the very beginning a non-written rule that none of us would ever tell our family members what we were doing. Because Germany had enacted a law, which they had copied from the Russians, called um, um, I come to the moment. Thank you, Sippenhaft, which means that anybody who has committed a political crime against the ruling party, the entire family could be incarcerated and even executed. So in order to protect our families, no family ever knew what was going on. The, so what English all had as material for her book was second-hand and third-hand. Of course, she was later involved when her siblings were arrested and executed. But the first time that they were arrested, they learned from me, because I called the parents and told them that the children were arrested. In the first edition of English Scholl's book, she writes, an unknown student called. In the second edition, ten years later, not only does she give my name, but she also, to my great surprise, uh, mentioned something else. When the trial of the People's Court was scheduled, it was not made public. Through connections that I had, I learned that the German people's, so-called People's Court would come to Munich for this. This almost never happened before. And it was obvious to me that why they would move the court to Munich. It could be only because of my friends who were arrested. Also, it was a for the... Nazis a very special occasion because Munich in the terminology almost always carried the most important uh, part. This was the Hauptstädtebewegung, in other words the capital of our movement, the Nazi movement. And so setting to them that in this city there would be traitors uh, was almost unthinkable. So it had to be, of course, the trial had to be there. Um, 
to my great astonishment, in her second edition of the book, she writes that when I met them at the railroad station and walked with them to the Palace of Justice, the mother asked me, is, uh, how are the children? Are they in any danger? I said, yes. Is it, is it serious? I said, yes. Uh, and she asked, are they going to die? I said, I'm afraid, so they will. And then I said that if I only had a dozen men and one tag, I could get them out of that court and bring them to safety to Switzerland. I don't think I have to emphasize for anybody that calling the parents carried considerable risk. I had to expect that the phone was tapped. I had to expect that somebody from the Gestapo would travel in the same train and observe whom they met. Well, but that risk had to be taken for the sake of the parents. And indeed, four hours after the end of the trial, they were executed. The parents would never have seen their children again if I had not called them Munich. A few years ago, UC Berkeley had a meeting a symposium on resistance in Germany to which many uh, academicians from the UC system came to participate and it was a very, very interesting three-day symposium with some very interesting to me people who spoke amongst them the widow of Count Moltke, who husband was executed because of the, his participation in 20th of July. But one of the strange things happened that Mommsen, who is regarded as the greatest living authority on the last years of Nazi rule in Germany, gave a talk. And he stated, in any movement, in anything that happens, what people who participated, what they thought, why they acted, what they did, is totally unimportant. The only thing that counts is what the historian says. Now, this were maybe 50 academic historians, and you can imagine their reaction was not very kind, but it was shocking to me. Now, there are about 50 books published on the Schultz or the White Rose. I think I have everyone that was ever published because most of them wanted to have photographs for me, and I have about 100 photographs that I took personally that are related to White Rose, and most publications bring some of my photographs. And a few years later, actually it's maybe five years ago, UCLA had a similar exhibit. It was different. It was made better. And 
Again, some strange things. The speakers, the invited speakers for this symposium was a German Air Force general from Texas. Texas, as you know, may not know, is where the German Air Force trains. There's enough airspace, and which is not available in Germany, so the German Air Force trains in Texas. Second speaker was the a professor of German from UCLA, who had very little to contribute because it was not his field of research. Um, I forgot to the third one, and I was the fourth one. Uh, we had an opportunity to visit the exhibit before the actual meeting began. And in this from German government sanctioned exhibit on German resistance, under the photographs, mine, of the White Rose members, the names were exchanged. Wrong names with each picture. And not a single mention in the entire exhibit on the FAB, the Freiheit Aktion Bayern, which is called Freedom Action Bavaria, about which I, will, I can mention it now. That was the only successful military putsch in the whole 12 years of the thousand-year reign. It was very obvious, and I come to that in a moment, that the system, the machinery that had been built up by the Nazis was so complete, it was absolutely impossible for anybody to use any resistance except maybe writing something and much to my surprise, long after the war, I met a professor of history at the University of Toronto in Canada, who's written extensively about these years. And he published a very good book called Hitler Youth. And in this book, he the kind of research he did, he mentions every single youth organization in Germany that tried to fight off Nazis. And frankly, I must admit, they did much, much more than we at the White, in the White House ever did. Many of them fought with weapons and killed and got killed. If you read a ordinary textbook, history book about time, nobody ever mentions about this. I didn't know about this. I found, when I was invited to give a talk at the local synagogue, a huge map, which one of the um, men in the congregation had found somewhere, I think he found it in Poland, showing every spot in Germany where there was a resistance group. There were over 350. And none knew of any of the others. Because communication was virtually impossible. 
in a country where mail can be read without you knowing it, where your telephone may constantly or intermittently tapped, where travel, especially once war began, was virtually impossible. If you were a male, let's say between 15 and 60, traveling in civilian clothes in a train, that was the only mode of transportation because nobody had cars anymore. There were buses and streetcars and trains. The trains were controlled, policed, by federal police and Nazi police, Gestapo. If somebody, male, in that age group, could not produce a piece of paper showing that he was traveling on orders, he was immediately arrested as AWOL. So communication, lack of communication, was the big problem why no movement could reach farther than maybe the, as far as the city extended. It was a little different in the Rhineland because in that area you can travel by a streetcar way over 100 miles. The reason is from what the cities are flowing into each other. If you go by a streetcar to the Emerald City and then hop in a streetcar from the next city, you can get, really go over 100 miles going by a streetcar. Then, of course, nobody controls streetcars. But that was relatively little known. The only organization I mentioned that had any success was started by a young captain who was severely wounded in Russia. And he was put in command <coughs> of an organization that trained translators, interpreters, for the entire armed forces of Germany. He was a convinced anti-Nazi. As a matter of fact, he personally made three attempts of assassinating Hitler. One um, is very interesting because he holed up in the attic of a room across the street from a house where the family, the adjutant of Hitler lived. And at that time of the war, Hitler was so afraid of assassination that no longer were publicized his travels. Uh, so he never knew where he was and when he would be where. Again, this person, through his connections, learned that Hitler would come to the Berghof, you know, this house he had up in the mountains. And he thought, well, probably on um, going there, he will make a quick stop in Munich to visit, so his adjutant can visit his family. This indeed happened. So he was sitting there in a, with a sharpshooter rifle, waiting and indeed, a big Mercedes-Benz came, and the driver, the, not the driver, but the adjutant jumped out of the car and went to the house to see his wife. And shortly after, a little girl, his daughter, came running out of the car to the big government car, and out came Hitler out of the car and embraced the girl. 
and this man, his name is Rupert Gangos, could not shoot because he didn't want to kill that girl. And the other two attempts were very similar. Always something happened. The um, idea was to, in his barracks, collect a group of soldiers, interpreters, of course, who were politically reliable and with whom he could, when the time came, start. The time came when the American army reached the borders of Bavaria, that's the eastern, southeasternmost state in Germany. And he called his troops out at five or six in the morning and told them what his plans were. And he said, anybody who does not want to participate, I hereby discharge you from the army, which of course he had no right, but he said he would do this, and he did things like this. All the others wanted to go with me, stay. And not a single person left. They, all the bridges in Munich were mined. They removed all the mines. Not a single bridge was blown up. Hitler had, as he always did with other German cities, as they were uh, besieged, left an order that the city had to be defended to the last man in the last house. What did Dr. Gangos do? He said, he, the first thing he did, besides getting the bridges in mind, occupied the main radio station in Munich and appealed personally to the population of Munich and surrounding cities hang out your bed sheets to the window, which is an international sign for uh, surrender, on which Hitler had ordered death penalty. If you arrest as many Nazis as you can, if you can't, write down their names so they won't be forgotten. They tried in vain to arrest the political leader of Bavaria, which was called Gaufführer at the time. Hitler changed all the names in 33, so they no longer were governor or president, and now Gauleiter. But he had holed up three stories underground, uh, protected by a large troop of SS soldiers. So they never got him. And there were indeed fights, he also had convinced the commander of a tank unit to participate. This is a very well thought out thing. And Munich, unlike other cities in Germany, was saved from total destruction. But bombers hadn't destroyed already, now was safe because there was no shooting in Munich against American troops. Unfortunately, Hitler in desperation, uh, the close of the war came to him, obviously, 
being lost, he created a new army called Volkssturm, it means people's storm, literally translated. They're all kids between 12 and 18, and old people over 6 to 70. Gave them guns and said, you have to fight to protect Munich. And unfortunately, one of those Volkssturm people shot the most prominent neurologist in Munich in the back because he was participated in the Freedom Action Bavaria. He was my neurologist and as a medical student. Um, we still hear, hear very little about this, although there was a 50-year um, celebration of this event. City of Munich to this day has never been able to, or seen to it, to memorialize all people who stood up against Nazi terror. A good friend of mine had the brilliant idea, there's a crossroads in Munich where five streets meet. This was called Danzig of Freiheit, the Freedom Danzig. And put up a plaque there. Only the names of those who died defending Munich against the Nazis. To this day, 60 years later, it has not happened. I want to spare you numerous examples that I have of this, but it's sad. In the same vein, this people's court that I mentioned, which was not in Germany's constitution, it was created by Hitler for one reason only, in 1934, to eliminate his enemies. Under German law, the few judges that survived instead of being hanged, which they should have, huh? and their family continued to receive a state pension until, I think, just three or four years ago. Uh, this is the problem with history that is a real problem for Germany, and it will continue for a few more years till another generation goes up and manages to live with it. White Rose, we never called it White Rose, on the leaflets we called Leaflets for the White Rose. We had no name for the baby. It was not an organization, because I've been constantly asked, when did you join the, the White Rose? It's not an organization that you joined, you didn't get an ID card with a number and the White Rose, and this I cannot emphasize enough, was nothing but intense personal friendships. Five groups of friends, of twos each, who knew each other, were close friends, 
And it so happened that in course of time, most of them found themselves in the same student company, and I come that in a second. So these three groups of two men each, women each, found together and worked together. Many of them knew each other beforehand, like Alex Morel and Christoph Popst were in the same school a while before. In 1938, something happened. The German military people realized that they needed physicians badly, but they could not override the academic uh, bureaucracy. So they found them, that they did the same thing that the United States did in the Second World War, namely drafted all the medical students in the army and put them in uniform. And at the beginning, in typical Prussian Nazi uh, manner, put them in barracks, marched, in the morning we marched to the university, the evening we marched back, which was totally ridiculous because everybody went to different lectures, <laughs> the lectures seminars. so they gave that up after a while, and you couldn't really study if there are 12 men to a room. So then gave us permission to find our own quarters, and only every Saturday we had to come to the barracks for roll call. Um, so in 1942, the Germans found themselves with thousands and thousands of medical students and three months of summer vacation. If they only could change the curriculum and install at least the medicine trimesters, they could have produced physicians a year sooner to everybody's advantage. We're not until 1944 did they get this idea. So here we were, thousands of medical students, what to do with this? So they had the brilliant idea, the ship is all to Russia. Medical curriculum in Germany at the time still does this, requires a certain number of months in practical experience. So they used this as an excuse, as the practical experience. <laughs> and it was an absolute disaster, of course but um, a waste of everybody's time. But for some of us, a very valuable experience. On our trip to the front, which took almost three weeks, the reason, of course, is any other train that carried munitions or soldiers or anything, of course, had preference. It was, we sometimes sat on the, on the side rail for hours, sometimes days. But we got the layover in Warsaw for two days. And we were on our own. And we had some interesting experiences in Warsaw. And about which I've written. And one of the things I visited was the ghetto. Now, you could not get into the ghetto, but you could go to the entrance. And at the entrance, I saw the following, amongst other things. 
all the male inhabitants of the ghetto who were healthy enough that they could work were put in columns to go to factories, etc., and do working duty. They had, of course, come back to the ghetto at night. And wherever they were during daytime, they scrounged for whatever little food they could find, had a little sack over their backs with food. And at the entrance of the ghetto stood a superior officer with a huge horsewhip. And all these things, I took pictures, photographs, of course. Uh, at his pleasure, whenever he felt like it, he whipped one of his poor Jews who were returning to the ghetto. And at the, ex- at the door where they stopped and where they, the loads were exact and sometimes thrown away, again, at the whim of the guards, uh, every second or third Jew he kicked in the ass. I have also a picture of that with a boot ending in the Jews behind. Um, that's when we learned about the mass deportation of Jews. Later, when I was closer to the front in a little field hospital, uh, I was on the way in an ambulance when two trucks came by, loaded with people, drove in the forest. I said, oh, that's interesting. Told my driver, let's follow them. And a guard turned his back, said, you can't. And then we heard shooting, and shortly after the trucks came back empty. So it was quite obvious to us what had happened. I think I'll quit there. Christoph Probst, who among the people in the White Rose happened to be my closest friend, he was the only one who was married. His third child was on the way while he was incarcerated. His wife lived out of town in a small community. And many times when we were engaged in long discussions, he missed the last train. He had to use a suburban train, so he stayed in my little room, sleeping on a rug. I took a picture. Anyway, um, we had long discussions about what was going on. And here, I have to tell you something, because to me this is the most tragic story of within the White Rose. Not only was he married and had three children, he was also in the army as a medical student, but not in the army, but in the Air Force. And because of that, all the Air Force Force medical students were studying at the University of Innsbruck which is in another country. It's in Austria, which of course was incorporated into Germany. And we always tried to protect him because of the fact that he was married and had children. And I always thought nothing could ever happen to him. 
because, sure, the Gestapo would be suspicious of him because he was a good friend. We were all close personal friends, as I mentioned. And I'm sure they would have interrogated him. There's nothing they could have ever had against him to incarcerate him, let alone execute him. Unfortunately, uh, he had written a draft for a, an additional leaflet, leaflet of the White House, and gave this to Hans Scholl for his comments. When Hans Scholl was arrested, he had this in his pocket. He tried to eat it, but of course the medium spit it out immediately and was put together. And when they searched his soul's room, they found letters from Christopher Popes to compare the handwriting. That was enough to sentence him to death. He would still be alive today, hopefully, if it hadn't been for that. There are similar incidents that, to my death, I will never understand. We had an agreement amongst ourselves that if anyone felt that he was close to being arrested or had received notice of a possible arrest, that that OD person should flee to a my mother's country estate where my mother could hide them and eventually find ways to smuggle them into Switzerland, which my mother had done on other occasions. And I always wondered why did nobody ever make use of these possibilities? See, we had, I have to come back to this, why did we choose leaflets? Well, I mentioned the difficulties of communication, why it was virtually impossible to start a resistance organization, and why you also needed weapons for this. For medical students, how could we get weapons? And when the arrests came, I, until two years ago, asked myself, why did nobody make use of this possibility of escaping? Well, Christopher Probst couldn't, because in the Air Force, he was in Innsbruck, he was safe. None of us ever talked about him to safeguard him. If his letter would not have been found in Hans Scholz's pocket, he still would be perfectly all right. So we had to take him out. You also have to eliminate Willy Graf, because Willy Graf didn't really belong to the White House. He had really bad luck. He, for reasons unknown, never was taken out of his military 
duties. He was a fighting soldier, a GI, both in the war in the beginning on the West Front and beginning in Russia. And somehow, finally, they discovered that he is a medical student. So he really was not, did not come to the University of Munich in the student company joining us until late in 1942. And we did not find out about him, and he did not find out about us until we were all in the same train to Russia. The actions of the Gestapo also were, to me, <laughs> strange, let's say. Immediately after the arrest of my friends, no, we have to go back. We got a call by telephone or messenger or courier uh, the day after the arrest, and I come to the in a moment, to immediately report to the barracks. We were told that we could not leave the barracks until further notice. And then the commander came and told us that at the university, two students were arrested for high treason. He didn't mention any names. And this, one of the students, had not appeared at this roll call. So if any one of us knew where he was, would you please come and tell him? I went to him immediately and said, made up a story, uh, you know, I know where he is. He's not staying in his little room in the city. He rented a room out in the country so he could study undisturbed by the bombs falling in Munich. And he has no telephone there. If you let me leave the barracks, I will immediately take my bicycle and get him. Which, of course, was a ruse. He gave me permission. I immediately went to Alexander Schmorell's father's practice, expecting, of course, that there would be a Gestapo agent sitting in the waiting room, which he did, and I recognized immediately, not by person, but it was obvious that he was Gestapo agent. And um, when, I, when, he, when he called me into his examining room, I told him, you obviously know that your son is arrested, but, and told him, if your son, Alex, or Alexander, finds a way to communicate with you, would you please remind him of our agreement to meet at my mother's place? But he never did. And on the same day, I went to the place where Hans and Sophie Scholl lived and searched for anything that would give a clue to me. Now, of course, I expected that that building was guarded by Gestapo, so I made sure that nobody was there who looked like a Gestapo agent. I went to the landlady and said, I have 
to take a few things with me and she opened the door for me. Then took everything with me that carried my name, books that had loaned him. And, so. and the same day, the youngest sister of the Scholl clan went to that same apartment and found Sophie Scholl's diary, which the Gestapo had overlooked when they searched the room. Unfortunately, it didn't help, but... So one wondered about the methods that Gustavo used. I found that when I was interrogated by the Gestapo, it was not much different, that um, it was, I thought, relatively easy to misguide them and gave answers that were properly for me and not to them. It was a little more difficult when it went to the court-martial, but that's another story. Um, the other worst thing for me was Professor Huber. Professor Huber was an extraordinary man. He obviously had a marked physical impairment. He walked, he had difficulty walking. When he spoke, he had difficulty speaking. But when he got carried away in speech, then suddenly his talk became fluent. He was carried away by it, and it was the most wonderful way he gave his opinion. He happened to be the, the expert on German folk music, and he had two fields in which he taught at the university, one folk music, the other one philosophy and psychology. I, at that time, carried a double studio, medicine and psychology, and he accepted me as his student for my PhD thesis. Um, which, of course, ended abruptly when he was executed. Before him, I had picked another professor to be my guidance for my PhD. His name was Fritz Joachim von Rintelen. And both Huber's and von Rintelen's lectures were full with non-philosophy or psychology students. There were medical students or students in any other field who came to listen to these two professors. Well, one day, Rintlen did not show up, so rumors immediately cursed around that maybe he was arrested or something happened, and he can't be sick because then the administration of the university would have put a note on the board of, on the door of the, the classroom to that effect. So we decided let's come back next week at the same hour when he gives, when he gives his weekly lecture. And we came and he didn't come. So a friend of mine, a artist, a painter, and I persuaded the group of between 80 and 100 students to go to the the rector, which is the president of the university, and demand uh, to know what happened. 
But we went there, and the secretary said he, he would not see it. So we made so much noise, and that eventually he did come. He opened the door a little slit and said, I refuse to give any information, and slammed the door shut. So we decided we'll all go to the home of Professor Lentlin and give him a sympathy demonstration. And here in broad daylight, in the middle of the war, on the main street in Munich, where this group of 800 people, about half of them in uniform, marching along, and the people on the sidewalk were just stunned. They didn't know what was going on. Um, so I had bad luck with picking <laughs> a professor to take me. I'm just telling this you a little uh, incidents that you won't find in books, but they're, I think, very typical for the, for the time. And I ended with Huber and wanted to really end up with Huber. Here, in prison, while he was waiting for execution, not quite a year, he wrote his Magum Opus on Leibniz, very famous German philosopher, also mathematician, because as so is in science, sometimes two scientists have the same idea at the same time, and Leibniz in Germany and Newton in England both invented the um, uh, integral. Anybody want what's the English name? Thank calculus. Thank you. It takes a mathematician. <laughs> uh, and he wrote his main work in person on Leibniz. His widow, with three children, was starving, but no support whatsoever. Of course not from the university, because the university retroactively kicked him out. They took his professor title away. I collected money for his widow, and for the next few years that I still lived in Germany, I kept her and the children alive. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.